31. Tuesday, May 31. We are here in our special program series via the telephone. And once again, we're honored to have our featured speaker, Ira Fistel, noted talk host and genius. And he's going to talk to us a continuing saga of the American railroads. I think we're starting in 1870, but he may yeah, know, he'll know better. Be doing, so without uh, further ado, let me bring on Ira. Ira, the telephone is yours, and welcome. Okay, hi. Uh, hi. What we're going to do tonight is approximately the last 30 years of the, of the uh, 19th century, maybe spilling over a little into the 20th. But uh, we have a lot of material to talk about. So, I guess um, it's time to start, right? Right. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the period from the end of the Civil War in 1865 and the construction of the, the completion of the first Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, um, following that, those two great, great events, there was a period of consolidation and massive new expansion. Uh, when you think of it this way, the railroads had no viable uh, land transportation competitor after the Civil War because uh, the only other ways you could go, um, you know, move goods and people, were either by horseback and wagon or by slow canal boats in, uh, where there were canals, or steamboats. And the steamboats obviously couldn't go where there weren't rivers, and the canals were frozen in winter, uh, very slow, and could not compete with the flexibility and the speed and the uh, just lugging potential of the railroads. So... This was a period of monopoly, virtual total monopoly of land travel by rail uh, because there just wasn't any other way to go. So uh, when Lord Acton said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, there never was a better example than the robber barons and monopolists uh, who got into the railroad business in the last quarter or last third of the uh, 19th century. Uh, the robber barons in general were financiers um, who worked out of Wall Street, speculating in stocks, making deals, and uh, more often than not, not very kosher. <laughs> And there was a lot of skullduggery going on, and we're going to talk about some of that tonight. Also, it was a time of very strong, big personalities, uh, mostly associated with one or two companies. Um, examples, in the West, it, there were the big four of the Central Pacific um, who pushed that line to completion, in 1869 as part of the Transcontinental Railroad. One of them was Collis P. Huntington. Uh, Collis P. continued in the railroad business after the Central Pacific was finished. And he moved east and became the boss man of the Chesapeake and Ohio. Uh, 
he did something that no industrialist, no speculator, no wealthy man did in his time. Carlos P. did not particularly care what other people thought. Okay, I'm right here in my recliner. Hello? You have corn and a hamburger patty on one plate. Are we going ahead? Okay, if you guys could mute with star six, please. Ira is speaking. Star six. uh, Should I just go ahead? No, you're good. Keep going, Ira. That uh, Huntington uh, was kind of a strange guy. He didn't care what people thought you were telling us. Bob, I can't hear you. Shall I keep talking? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. You may uh, uh, proceed. These guys came in. Welcome. And I told them to mute their phone. Um, So proceed. It's okay. As everybody in Wall Street knew and everybody did. But we're here. After his wife died, he scandalized everybody by marrying his mistress. That was something you weren't supposed to do. But Huntington was so powerful and so wealthy that he made everybody accept what he did, his marriage to his mistress. His mistress was a woman from, I think it was Virginia, uh, and she uh, inherited part of the Huntington fortune from her dead husband. However, the other part of it went to his nephew, Henry Huntington. And if the name starts sounding familiar to people living in Southern California, it's because you have known them well. Um, Carlos P. died in 1900. <clears throat> Henry married Arabella Huntington, the former mistress of his uncle, to get the family fortune back together again. Instead of having one half of it go to uh, Arabella, he married Arabella and got the whole thing back. And he invested it in land in Southern California. And in that, also in that time, he built trolley lines to reach the land and develop the land and became fabulously wealthy. The Huntington Library in Pasadena which I hope most of you have been to or all of you have been to and seen, if you ever get to California, is fabulous. Among other things, it has one of the first folios of the Shakespeare plays. Well, Henry and Arabella had their portraits in the uh, museum, in the library at uh, Pasadena. And if there ever was an old battle axe, it was Arabella Wortham Huntington Huntington. Her picture uh, would be a nightmare for kids to look at when they're five or six years old. So that was the kind of thing that uh, what that went on in those days. So Henry and Arabella um, got richer and richer, and the, the story goes. A little boy comes with his father to California, and he sees uh, Huntington Drive, and he sees the Huntington Hotel, and he sees Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach. And he says to his father, well, his father says, that's the Pacific Ocean out there. And the little boy says, oh, Daddy, does Mr. Huntington own that too? 
So that's the way we start out tonight with the vast riches and skullduggery of the robber barons. Okay, um, but there were a lot of other things going on. First, there was a panic in 1873. Um, panics became more and more frequent and closer and closer together as the economy uh, spurted and uh, there was so much speculation, so many things could go wrong. The Panic of 1873 was probably touched off partly by the Chicago Fire of late 1871, which bankrupted insurance company after insurance company and bank after bank because of the terrific damage from the fire. And it uh, showed up in Wall Street, and people went broke, and uh, you know, money, banks collapsed. Jay Cook, one of the leading financiers of the time, went bankrupt. So uh, there was a pretty much of a lull in new construction on the railroads. But at the same time, there was a move to consolidate smaller lines into longer and more, uh, what would you say, more uh, tentacles reaching out from originally what were short lines. good example of that is the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, which began as a short line from Atchison, Kansas, uh, uh, in about 1870, through the little towns in Kansas, aiming for Dodge City. And when it got to Dodge City and uh, was able to uh, take cattle to market from Dodge City to the east, it stopped there. And then it got more ambitious after the panic wore off. It got a land grant from the state of Kansas, and it started building west. And by 1880, what was it, 1889, something like that, it was in California. It bought part of the route, bought the charter of another company, and it built, and it grew, and it became a monster. Instead of being a Kansas short line, it was uh, running from the Missouri River all the way to California by 1880s. And then it extended east into Chicago, and it became the only line under a single ownership between Chicago and California, and it stayed that way until after World War II. That's just one uh, one example. The the country became carved up by the railroads uh, and their owners into segments. First, there was New England. The lines in New England included. Two, two fairly big ones. One is the New York, New Haven, and Hartford, which was owned and run by J.P. Morgan. And the other was the Boston and Maine, which took over a number of other lines in, Mass in Massachusetts and uh, New Hampshire and Maine, and was run by a dynamo whose name was Edward French. You have one man at the top of a lot of these companies, and he's associated specifically with that one company. In Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Railroad came under the uh, leadership of Edgar Thompson and Thomas Scott, who followed him. And they expanded the Pennsylvania Railroad from Pittsburgh, where 
it had stopped after uh, being finished in 1854, I think it was. Uh, after the Civil War, the fever was on to reach Chicago because Chicago was on the Great Lakes and had already started penetrating the wheat lands and corn lands west of the city. And the Pennsylvania bought itself an affiliate called the Pittsburgh Fort Wayne in Chicago and reached Chicago before the Civil War actually had begun. Uh, then there was the New York Central. The New York Central's boss was Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, V-A-N, capital D-E-R, capital B-I-L-T. Except the Commodore didn't spell very well, and he wrote it all down as one word and became Vanderbilt. Uh, Commodore Vanderbilt actually had run steamships in New York Harbor, and he was the Commodore, quote, of the fleet. But after the war, he turned his attention away from steamboats and into railroads. And he bought up and forced others to sell to him uh, a whole string of lines. One was the Harlem River line, which went uh, from New York up the Harlem River. And the Hudson line, which uh, ran into the Harlem line north of New York City. Vanderbilt blackmailed, if uh, you want to call it that, the Hudson Line to uh, because he had a control, he had control of its entrance into New York City, and he forced it to come under his uh, leadership and his ownership. And then he put together a whole string of short railroads across the state of New York, all the way to Buffalo, 425 miles. And that wasn't enough for the Commodore. With the Pennsylvania moving to the west and going for Chicago, Commodore Vanderbilt bought the Lakeshore line between uh, Buffalo and Toledo and then built his own line between Toledo and Chicago. And the uh, whole thing came out as the New York Central. It also got to St. Louis, as did the Pennsylvania. Those big companies in the East were the big berthas of uh, railroading in the 1970s and 80s and 1890s. And they were called the trunk lines. Anything running uh, east and west between New York, Chicago, and St. Louis, uh, there were four or five major trunk lines, so-called. One of them was a comp uh, one of the earliest lines, the Baltimore and Ohio, which originally was aimed at the Ohio River. But after the Civil War, it saw what was happening in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was the uh, dominant industrial city in the country with its steel mills, especially after the Civil War when the Bessemer, uh, Bessemer converter which was invented by Sir Henry Bessemer in England during the Civil War and imported to America, uh, made uh, steel making much easier. Steel is made from iron ore without the impurities. And Bessemer's converter blew the uh, impurities out of the iron uh, that was made from the iron ore and turned it into harder, tougher, steel. 
And the big market for steel was, guess what? Rails. And Pittsburgh produced more industrial traffic and more industrial goods than any place else in the country. And if I'm not mistaken, then the rest of the whole country all together. Well, the Baltimore and Ohio was down in Maryland, south of Pennsylvania, and it cast its greedy eyes on Pittsburgh, which, of course, was uh, served by the Pennsylvania Railroad and nothing else. And the B&O broke the monopoly, got into uh, Pittsburgh, and then headed west to Chicago and got there in the 18, I think about 1880-something. So that was the third big trunk line. The fourth big one was the Erie. The Erie had started out as the New York and Erie, uh, intending to connect the Hudson River with Lake Erie. And indeed it did. Uh, it had a peculiarity, which was that it was a built to the six-foot gauge, the only big company not built to four feet, eight and a half. So uh, the Erie is was the route you chose if you had something really big and outsized and heavy, you put it on the Erie because the clearances were bigger. Well, the Erie struck out for the west also after it reached uh, Lake Erie, and it went down into Ohio and crossed Ohio into Indiana and got up to Chicago. Guess what? Everybody wanted to get to Chicago, and by 18... Well, the end of the 1880s, Chicago was, as it still is today, and probably always will be, the biggest rail center in the United States. It's where all the eastern lines, all the western lines, all the southern lines, and all the northern northern transcontinentals all come together. The second biggest today is Kansas City, and the third biggest is St. Louis. But uh, you, you see something in common with all of these because all of those three cities are within range of both eastern lines and western lines. And they all congregate where the, the hubs are, as they use the modern aircraft term. Uh, so that's what happened with the Erie. Okay, and then there was another company called the Nickel Plate. That wasn't its official name. It was officially the New York, Chicago, and St. Louis. Recognize the terminals? But the nickel plate was built for one reason and one reason only. It was built parallel to the New York Central. And it was built with the idea of forcing Vanderbilt to buy it, which he indeed did. And he paid such a high price for it that it got the name nickname nickel plate because it was said that the the company had to be nickel plated to be worth what Vanderbilt paid for it. But see the kind of games people played? The nickel plate was built strictly and especially to get Vanderbilt to buy it, force him to buy it to keep his monopoly. Well, there was a retaliation on that one. It was called the South Penn. And the South Penn was built, or was being built, between Pittsburgh and New York. It uh, didn't start in New York, actually. It was built east from Pittsburgh, 
through the Allegheny Mountains, and it was built to compete with the Pennsylvania Railroad and to force the Pennsylvania to buy it as the New York Central had been forced to buy the nickel plate. Well, J.P. Morgan got in on the deal, and he arranged a compromise. The compromise was that the uh, promoters of the South Bend, uh, South Penn, uh, South Pennsylvania, would be, would abandon their right of way, and accept instead Morgan control and Morgan financing. What happened to the right of way of the South Penn? Well, has anybody ever driven the Pennsylvania Turnpike? The Pennsylvania Turnpike's western part from Irwin, outside Pittsburgh, to just outside Harrisburg, was the original right-of-way of the South Penn Railroad, which was never finished as a railroad, but became finished as a superhighway, the first in the country, and it opened as a highway in, I think, 1940, and used the nine tunnels that had been built uh, by the South Penn intending to use them as railroad tunnels, and they came out as automobile tunnels. There are only four of them left. All the others have been dynamited, and uh, the mountain uh, on top of the tunnel uh, knocked down so that the, the road goes up and up and up and over the top all in the daylight. But uh, that's a story, another story of the financing and building and rivalries of the railroads in the east. Those are the big trunk lines. Then there was a group of lines called the anthracite roads. They concentrated on the anthracite coal regions in Pennsylvania and uh, to a lesser extent, I guess, in southern New York. Um, those included lines like the Redding, the Lehigh Valley, the Jersey Central, the uh, Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western, the New York, Ontario, and Western. All those lines were built to haul coal, anthracite coal. Why anthracite? Because before you had clean-burning stoves, anthracite, which is harder than soft coal, bituminous, makes less smoke and is less dirty. And so anthracite was used for home purposes when almost every home was heated by coal. And there was a big market in anthracite. Some of those lines were built to haul anthracite to places as far away as Canada, not only to New York City and Philadelphia, but Montreal, uh, Toronto. So the anthracite lines were very, very prosperous at the end of the 19th century. They were shorter than the eastern trunk lines, but no less important in terms of financing. West of Chicago, there was a whole group of lines called the Grangers. The Grange, Grangers got their name from the Grange, which was the organization of farmers. And these lines built from Chicago to the west, and their territory generally ran from Chicago basically to the Missouri River, and sometimes a little further, but that was the central territory of the Grangers. Those lines included the Chicago and Northwestern, the Chicago Rock Island, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, the Chicago Great Western, the uh, Minneapolis and St. Louis, the Toledo, Peoria, and Western, which I'll talk about a little bit later, uh, 
and one that was built from Milwaukee and was called the uh, Milwaukee and St. Paul and eventually became the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific. But it was basically a Granger too. Then there were the Western Transcontinentals. A transcontinental didn't mean that it had rails between the Atlantic and the Pacific. No company has had that in the United States ever, although both the Canadian giants, the Canadian Pacific and the Canadian National do. But the transcontinentals ran everywhere west of Chicago, from Chicago to California, to Southern California, Northern California, the Pacific Northwest, and they all are called transcontinentals. One of them was the Southern Pacific. One of them was the Northern Pacific. The Northern Pacific was the second transcontinental railroad. The first one you know was 1869. It only took 14 years before the Northern Pacific was finished as the second transcontinental. And I talked about individuals pushing their companies and leading their companies. The Northern Pacific was built by a German immigrant by the name of Henry Villard, uh, which I think would have been pronounced Villard because V in German, like Volkswagen in Germany, is Volkswagen. So uh, the V is an, pronounced as an F. So Henry Villard or Villard was the leader and guiding spirit of the Northern Pacific. He lost control of it, he got control of it back, and he lost control of it again. But he was totally associated with that company. I've already mentioned the Santa Fe, which went from a Kansas short line to a transcontinental. Then there was the um, Canadian Pacific. Well, we talked about them. The Southern Pacific, the Union Pacific, was part of the original transcontinental railroad. The Central Pacific, there was the Missouri Pacific, and then there was the Great Northern. The Great Northern was built parallel to the Northern Pacific. But there was a couple there were a couple of big differences. First of all, the Great Northern was built by a Canadian, James J. Hill. He's called the Empire Builder. To this day, James J. Hill is still called the Empire Builder. And he built the Great Northern close to the Canadian border with the idea of pulling down wheat and uh, other grains and resources from Canada into his company, cutting the Northern Pacific out because his line was further north. Not only that, but Hill built his railroad without land grants. And here we come to one of the big stories of the 19th century, land grants. How did all these companies get built? How did they get built so fast? Well, you remember that the original Pacific Railroad was financed by the federal government giving alternate sections of land to the building companies, which they could sell and uh, populate and have uh, developed and use the resources that they got from the sale of the lands and from the traffic that they generated to build the, the building, to build the railroads. Many, many of the railroads in the late part of the 19th century were built with land grants. One of those was a north-south railroad, and uh, I've talked before about the fact that there are really only four 
major north-south uh, railroad corridors. One is along the east coast. One is the Mississippi Valley. The third is the front range of the Rockies going down into Texas. And the fourth is California. Those are the only four major heavy-duty, heavy heavyweight north-south lines in the United States. The traditional travel uh, and freight, and especially freight, uh, traffic is east-west or west-east. Illinois Central was built with land grants. In 1856, it was finished. I mentioned that before the last time. Um, its original main line became a branch line as soon as the Illinois Central moved into Chicago. Then there was another region, the Pocahontas region. That's West Virginia, Western Virginia, um, and parts of Kentucky. And there, those lines, uh, there were basically three, um, hauled coal. They were built to haul coal, and in case of one of them, we'll talk about in just a moment, it wasn't built to haul anything but coal. Pocahontas coal was shipped in two directions, east to Norfolk uh, and uh, Chesapeake Bay for export to England, Europe, anywhere else, and west to Lake Erie and Lake Michigan for export, not for export, but for uh, paying uh, the markets in Chicago and west of Chicago and Cleveland and Pittsburgh. So the three lines there were the Norfolk and Western, uh, Collis P. Huntington's Chesapeake and Ohio, and later on in the 20th century, a new line built from scratch by Henry Huntington Rogers, who was Mark Twain's angel and also uh, was famous as the uh, pirate of Wall Street. Uh, Mr. Rogers did not have a very nice business reputation, but he built the Virginian Railway specifically to haul coal east and west. And that's all it was meant to do. Then there was the South. And the South was still, after the Civil War, largely five-foot gauge, which meant that the Southern Railroads were shut out from all the traffic uh, coming along the four foot eight and a half inch gauge lines uh, in the rest of the country, they eventually had to to change over, and I think it was 1884. I'm not positive of the date, but on one Sunday in that date, they arranged to add a second, a third rail inside the five foot gauge, and turn the the lines overnight from five feet to four foot eight and a half, while the shops changed the gauge of the wheels on the locomotives and cars. And it was all done overnight, one day. Someday I'm going to look up more about that, maybe write about it. What a, what a remarkable occasion that must have been. One day the, the whole south is five foot gauge, and then uh, Monday it was all four foot eight and a half. This uh, part of what might be called the Battle of the Gauges, 
and I mentioned the Erie a moment ago. The Erie, of course, also had to go to four feet eight and a half, but what it did, it still had those extra wide clearances and high clearances, and the Erie became known as the line you shipped on when you had oversized stuff. There was also a smaller gauge. This all started in 1870 when a young man, he I think uh, he had been a general in the Civil War early in his 20s. His name was uh, William Oh, gosh. What was it? Oh, I'll I'll get it in a second. Anyway, um, he saw in Wales, on a trip to Wales, the two-foot, six-inch gauge Welsh railways that were built to haul slate um, in Wales. And he got the idea uh, that it would be much cheaper and much more uh, flexible to build three foot lines in Colorado, where he moved. William Jackson Palmer was his name. Uh, Palmer began in 1870 with the idea of building a railroad from Denver, his new adopted hometown, to Colorado Springs, which he founded and lived there, and down into Mexico. In other words, he wanted to start another corridor um, branching off the Denver to Texas corridor and going through New Mexico and on into Mexico. There was no NAFTA in those days, and uh, the Rio Grande Railroad that um, William Jackson Palmer started never got anywhere near Mexico. However, it was built to a three-foot gauge, which meant that it couldn't connect with anything else. But it could go into the heart of the Rockies where standard gauge lines couldn't build because the grades were too steep and the curves were too short, too sharp. So Palmer started something that was looked at in the East also. And there were financiers in the East who envisioned building a whole new system of three-foot gauge railroads to compete with those that were already in existence because there was no other way of shipping anything but by rail that would compete with the railroad. So they decided that they would build a second rail network in the east um, using Palmer's three-foot gauge and compete with the bigger, uh, older railroads uh, for carrying low-cost, um, low, high volume, heavyweight stuff slowly. After all, what were they competing against? Horses. You know, the only thing they were competing against uh, for speed was the other railroads. And if you had, uh, you know, trains that didn't have to go very fast, the narrow gauge would be perfectly accessible. So this uh, didn't never get terribly far. But it did get so far as Texas. And uh, for a while, there were lines in Indiana and Ohio that were built to three-foot gauge. There's also one a notable one in Pennsylvania that's still in existence. All right, so those wider gauges became standard, and standard was challenged by three-foot. 
at least for about 10, 10 or 15 years. Meanwhile, other things were happening. I mentioned last time that the railroads were the first great industry in the United States. Um, they were totally unique. Nothing had ever been that widespread, it had that much investment, and had that much profit, and that much trouble. And there were a lot of troubles. Uh, but the investment that the railroads represented was enormous. They were the biggest employer in the, com- in the country. They were the biggest market in the country for uh, buying steel and uh, construction materials and everything else. And they were the biggest, as I just mentioned, the biggest employers. And the wages and working conditions were not necessarily of the best, uh, especially on lines like the Erie, which was, uh, well, I'll get to this in just a second here. The Erie was the most fought over and most ruined company of them all. It was raided by first uh, an old uh, cattle swindler named Daniel Drew, who's known as Uncle Daniel on Wall Street. Daniel Drew started out by selling cattle, which he had fed a lot of, uh, got them to drink a lot of water just before they were sold at the auction. And they were therefore weighed more than they would have weighed if they hadn't been drenched with water inside. And from that, we get the term watered stock. Stock, uh, in, the, in terms of uh, business shares, which are watered, means that their value is less than the real va- the, the real value. Uh, it, I'm sorry, put that the other way around. Their value is exaggerated over the real value. Uh, just as the value of the cattle that Daniel Drew sold were over, overvalued. Well, he did the same thing with the stocks in the, in the Erie Railroad. People who invested in the Erie nearly always lost their money because not only was Daniel Drew involved there, but Daniel Drew was a small-timer compared to who came after him. Drew was nudged out of the Erie and wound up broke by Jim Fisk and the robbingest of all the robber barons, Jay Gould. Jay Gould is one of the most fascinating characters in American history. I don't think anybody ever had anything good to say about Jay Gould. And I don't think any historian has ever had anything good to say about Jay Gould. He was an absolute total swindler from start to finish. He swindled his own partners. Uh, he went into partnership with Jim Fisk, and they just, they uh, ruined Daniel Drew, and then they went after Commodore Vanderbilt. Not that Vanderbilt didn't deserve it, but they figured out that they could, they saw what uh, Vanderbilt had, had to do with the nickel plate, and they figured, well, we'll do this uh, ourselves, except we'll make the stakes higher. They knew that Vanderbilt wanted to keep his monopoly, and so they built uh, a challenging company, and then they 
but kept buying stock, offering stock for sale, and Vanderbilt would buy the stock. What Vanderbilt didn't know was that they were producing stock on a printing press every night and putting it up for sale the next morning. It had you know no real value because the company didn't have any more worth than it ever had. So Vanderbilt kept buying stock, and Fisk and Gould kept putting away money, except that Gould, being the man he was, uh, began secretly selling stock, undercutting Fisk. <laughs> Fisk, I don't know if you ever found out about it, but uh, he was murdered by a, um, a guy whose woman he was seeing, and <laughs> uh, that was the end of Jim Fisk. Jay Gould went on to become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. He had a huge fortune, and he ruined a lot of other people and a lot of other railroads in his time. After he died, he left a son, George Gould, that whole fortune. And George Gould, within about 20 years, spent every cent of it. Not one penny of the Gould fortune ever went to charity or ever went to any public benefit uh, absolute ruin from beginning to end. There's never been another Jay Gould, and for heaven's sake, I hope there never is another one. Well, meanwhile, while all this was going on, there were tremendous changes in technology. Two extremely important inventions were made at approximately the same time, just after the Civil War. One of those was the Westinghouse air brake. Now, a train can be very powerful, it can run very fast, but what use is it if you can't stop it? And the only way you could stop a train was by hand braking, uh, getting guys up on top of the cars to turn a brake wheel and uh, clamp the brakes down. There was no other brake. The engine might have had a brake, but the cars didn't. And the engine brake, obviously, is not enough to break a long string of cars with heavy weight. So there was a big need for some other kind of brake. George Westinghouse heard about the building of a tunnel in Europe where the drills used compressed air. And he had a brainstorm. He got the idea of using compressed air to press the brakes down on trains. Shortly after the Civil War, he demonstrated his um, air brake in a particularly exciting way. He didn't plan this, uh, but he had a test uh, air brake put on a locomotive and cars, and the train was going to be testing the brake, and it was running down the track near Pittsburgh, when a horse and wagon got stuck on the tracks ahead of the train. What did the engineer do? He put on the air brakes, and the train stopped short of the horse and wagon. Well, after that, there was no question about what was the way to stop a train. And to this day, the air brake is the key, the the most important braking factor that we have. We have others now. Uh, electric lines have the what's called um, regenerative braking, 
where the brakes, when the brakes go on, uh, it means that the wheels become generators instead of uh, motors. When you stop a motor and, and uh, it's running on gravity or something, um, it becomes a generator. And some of the power goes back into the, into the overhead or the third rail, and uh, there's more power to, to run other trains. And at the same time, you're stopping your train. That concept was taken by the diesel locomotive, except that the diesel has no place to send the extra power. So the power that it generates is dissipated in heat through grids in the roof of the engine. But all of those are supplementary to the air brake. Mr. Westinghouse also had another brainstorm because if what happened if, for example, uh, your air compressor didn't make enough air fast enough to stop a train uh, or to make two stops close together or something like that? Or what happened if the air hose broke that connected the cars with the air brake? Well, the other idea that Westinghouse had is something that's uh, adapted to many purposes today, the fail-safe principle. When a train runs today with air brakes, the air brakes don't apply by pushing air against the brakes. The air holds the brakes off the wheels. And when the uh, engineer wants to stop the train, he lets air out of the train line, out of the uh, compressed air line, and the wheels, uh, the brakes come down on the wheels. And it can be controlled very, very well. So that the fail-safe principle also applies. If a train runs away and loses it and there's no air brake, the brakes go on instead of off and cause if there's no air. So uh, that was the huge contribution of George Westinghouse. The other one was Eli Janney's semi-automatic coupler. Uh, I don't think anybody here has probably ever heard of Eli Janney, but the American railroads could not be what they are without his invention. The Janney coupler is uh, like if you take your right hand and your left hand and you put them together with the fingers linked and bent, you know, bent into, into each other, and linked, you feel, if you try to pull it apart, it's very strong. And if you open your fingers, it comes apart very easily. If you close your hand, the two, you close your two hands, and the, uh, your fingers meet the palm on each hand, and it locks. Well, that's what the Janney coupler does. It's a semi-automatic because... It needs to have somebody do something to uncouple it, but it will couple automatically. And it is the main reason why American freight trains can be 200 cars long. Uh, they're, they're experimenting now with five-mile-long freight trains, if you can believe that. Uh, it isn't the, the limitations of power on the locomotive that limits the size of the train, and it isn't the air brake even that limits the size of the train. It's the stress on the couplers. In Europe, they don't use the Janney coupler. 
But European trains are very different from American in that they don't have anywhere near the volume of heavy long-distance traffic. Uh, They are basically much lighter weight and much more frequent. American trains uh, tend to be as long as you can get them safely, and the canny coupler is the key to that. Someday they will find a way to make the Janney coupler also couple the uh, air hoses together. As it is now, the couplers will come together, but a man has to get in between the cars after they're coupled to connect the air hoses. So it's not fully automatic, but uh, that's in the future. All right, that's two huge pieces of technology. Locomotives began to change as the demand changed. The standard American locomotive before the Civil War was the American Standard type. That was what it was called, the American Standard. Four four leading wheels, four driving wheels connected to the the cylinders, and nothing behind the driving wheels. But as locomotives got bigger and heavier to pull longer and heavier trains, the wheel arrangement of the locomotives began to be adjusted according to the kind of work that they were going to do. So freight trains generally did not need a four-wheel lead truck because they didn't go very fast. So they would have a two-wheel lead truck, but uh, the first step was to have six driving wheels instead of four, and it wasn't long after that when it was eight driving wheels instead of four. So you had a 280 type called a consolidation because it was uh, built at the time when so many railroads were consolidating into longer and heavier and uh, bigger companies. After that, the uh, trailing trailing wheels were added under the cab to make a 282 and then later a 482 and then later a 4102. Um, and then passenger locomotives kept the four-wheel uh, lead truck because they ran faster, but they also expanded to six driving wheels and then later four, uh, later eight driving wheels and uh, came up with a 482 type. And then finally, in the middle of the uh, 1930s, a 484 type, which was the last major development in steam power. Okay, then there was the employee, the the uh, employment situation. I mentioned that the jobs were heavy. There were the work was very hard, and it was very dangerous. There were a great many people injured and killed on the on the railroads, employees particularly. Labor organizations, unions, were practically unknown before the Civil War. But the railroads brought them into uh, into use because the railroaders who were doing these jobs found that they had no bargaining power unless they joined together. Uh, Eugene Debs was probably the uh, the most famous railroad union organizer, but he came a little bit later. In 1877, the earliest railroad laborers' unions uh, called strike. 
when the Baltimore and Ohio reduced their wages by 10%. The strike was, uh, began at Martinsburg, West Virginia, and spread to Pittsburgh, and there was violence. And before you knew it, the Pittsburgh depot had been burned down, and all over the country, people were absolutely shocked. They were terrified. What is this? The civil disobedience, uh, riots, um, labor got, you know, was not popular. Well, that eventually, uh, that strike was settled, but 16 years later came the greatest of all the railroad strikes, the Pullman strike of 1893. I think I'll leave that one to next to the next uh, segment, the next uh, next time we talk. There were great safety improvements, but also great disasters because trains were running faster and the cars were still made of wood. And in passenger trains of the 1860s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s were made mostly of wood. What happened when a passenger train crashed? The wood cars would be squashed, and the people inside were squashed too. But also, those cars were heated by stoves and lit by oil lamps, and a crashed train um, almost always caught fire. So you had absolutely horrific disasters. Um, One was at Chatsworth, Illinois. Uh, This is a story and a half. Uh, um, this was happened on a company that was practically bankrupt, and it needed cash so much that it offered a cheap excursion to Niagara Falls, and hundreds of people bought tickets. And the train uh, was running at night uh, through the Illinois countryside, and then they'd been burning weeds by the track that day, and nobody had studied, stayed by to, to uh, see what happened afterwards. The train comes along and sees a fire ahead of it. And the engineers tried to stop the two engines, but the engines crashed into the bridge. The, the wooden bridge, uh, which was only about six feet high, uh, burned to the ground. The engines fell into the pit, and the cars jumped in over the engines, and the whole mess burned up. And Eighty-something people were killed. Um, the first reports were there were 100 people killed. And the uh, bridges burned at Chatsworth, and a hundred lives were lost. The, <clears throat> and of course, the newspapers, like Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, just loved these uh, horrible accidents. Um, there was another one in Pennsylvania, uh, no, in uh, New Jersey, where two trains were racing on parallel tracks, and the two tracks crossed ahead of them, and one train decided not to stop for whatever reason. Nobody knows what the engineer was thinking, but he kept running straight ahead and crashed into the other train at the crossing. And that one killed about 50 people. Uh, There were more and more of those. One of them was immortalized in a song. It's called The Wreck of Old 97. Anybody ever ever hear that? I want to sing a little bit of it. Um, Everybody tells me not to sing, but I'm going to do a little chorus of it. Oh, they gave him his orders down in Monroe, Virginia, saying, Steve, you're way behind time. You're not running 38. Now, this is old 97. You must put her in dispenser on time. 
97 was the crack mail train, and the engineer's name was not Steve, it was Joe, but his last name was Brody, and this was at the time when everybody in America was thinking about Steve Brody, who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. So his nickname was Steve. Um, well, that's one chorus of the old 97 song, which has the melody of a song called The Ship That Never Returned that was written by Henry W. Work. Uh, I don't know anything about Henry Work except that he created a couple of the most popular melodies in American history, and that's one of them, The Ship That Never Returned. He also created My Grandfather's Clock Was Too Large for the Shelf, So It Stood 90 Years on the Floor. Ever heard that one? Uh, that's also Henry C. Work. Um, okay. Accidents did happen. Horrible accidents. There was also a great rush to get the places faster in that same period of time. And in 1893, the passenger boss in charge of passengers for the New York Central Railroad created a new train called the Empire State Express run between New York and Buffalo. And to show off how fast the Empire State Express was going to be, he gave engineer Charles Hogan on a locomotive called the 999, because that was its number, he told Mr. Hogan to open the throttle and go as fast as you could dare. Well, uh, he did, and the 999 was said to have gone 112 and a half miles an hour for a short distance. And the 999 became world famous immediately. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but a model of it does, and I think it's in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. I'm not positive. I think it used to be, if it isn't now. Well, the Pennsylvania wasn't about to let that go by, and their new train, the Pennsylvania Limited, uh, was initiated in, I think, 1902. And the same thing happened. The bosses of the company told the engineer, whose name was Gerald McCarthy, a fine Irish name, uh, they said, okay, McCarthy, go. <laughs> and McCarthy opened the, the throttle and went. And from three miles between Lyria and uh, Ada, Ohio, Ada, Ada and Lima near there, uh, he had the Pennsylvania Special running at a reported 127 miles per hour. Uh, but there was no confirmation of it. The most, the fastest steam locomotive that was ever timed scientifically was the Mallard in England, uh, which ran 126 miles an hour. But anyway, speed uh, was, a, was a factor, and as you know, uh, speed kills. Well, there's much more lore of the rails at this time. Uh, Rachel wants me to talk about Kate Shelley. <laughs> Kate Shelley was an Irish immigrant girl whose father had died, and had, she lived with her mother and I think three brothers and no one brother and three sisters on a farm in Iowa. Now, she was about 16 years old. Uh, she knew all about trains because her brother worked on the railroad, and she heard one night that there was a flood at Honey Creek near their farm, which was in Boone County, Iowa. 
Well, she went down to Honey Creek to see what had happened. And it turned out that the flood had knocked out the bridge at Honey Creek. And a locomotive, which was running ahead of a passenger train to make sure the line was safe, fell into the river and into Honey Creek, and four of its crew, all of its crew, were stranded in the river. Well, Kate realized that there was a passenger train coming, and she decided that she was going to stop that passenger train. She yelled to the crew that she'd bring help, but she was going to get the, the train stopped first. But in order to get to the station where the train would stop in Moingona, Iowa, she had to cross another bridge over the Des Moines River. And that bridge was made out of wood, and it was specifically designed to keep people from walking across it. She had a lantern, but the lantern blew out, so that was of no use. She crawled across that bridge on her hands and knees, scraping her knees, of course, but uh, getting probably a dozen splitters, who knows how many, in the dark, in the rain, in the flood. And she made it across the bridge and then ran two miles to the station and got there breathless in time to stop the passenger train. Well, that made Kate Shelley a national heroine. And uh, her story is very well known. Um, Later on, the Chicago Northwestern Railroad built a high-level bridge to replace the Des Moines River Bridge and called it the Kate Shelley Bridge, unofficially. Well, a few years ago, I think 2009, the current owners of what was the Northwestern are now the Union Pacific. The Union Pacific built a new Kate Shelley Bridge, bigger, stronger, and wider than the old one, and called it officially the Kate Shelley Bridge. I've never been to Kate Shelley's home in Iowa, but I'm going to go one of these days. Uh, They have a museum there of things that uh, she owned and things that she collected and things that her family uh, owned. Uh, She was eventually hired as a station agent in the station in which she saved the passenger train in Moingana, uh, Iowa, and she died in 1912. Uh, I think she was about 50 years old when she died, something like that. But uh, she was the girl hero, heroine of the 19, 1890s, 1880s. you got to know about Casey Jones. Uh, anybody here think Casey Jones is just a legendary figure? Well, he was a real person. His name was John Luther Jones. But his wife didn't like the name Luther, and his boss said, we've got too many John Joneses on this division. Where do you grow up? And he says, Casey, Kentucky. Uh Aha, you're Casey Jones, says the boss. And that's what he was called for the rest of his life. Casey Jones was an engineer. And he worked for first uh, Mobile, Ohio, and then moved over to the Illinois Central Railroad. He ran trains in Chicago at the Columbian Exposition in 1893. And then he went back home to Memphis, Tennessee, and ran between Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi. Well, one night in 1800, uh, he was called to run a late mail train. The train was five hours or something late because it was raining so hard that the track was all messy. 
there was a man in the rain in the uh, roundhouse in Memphis who worked on the engines, an illiterate guy named Waz Saunders. And Casey took a liking to him. And Casey apparently had a uh, very liberal uh, uh, sense of race relations for that time. He made friends with the black men who worked with him. And Wallace Saunders was his friend. So was his fireman, Sim Webb, who was a black man who wanted to be a doctor. But uh, how do you be a doctor when you're a black man in Mississippi in 1900? Well... Uh, Casey that uh, took the took that run um, on the you know, fast mail train. After coming up from Jackson uh, earlier that same day, and he just got back on the locomotive, and he had Sim Webb with him as a fireman, and they ran that train back down the track in Mississippi at night, in the rain, uh, in the dark. And Casey was there was bound and determined he was going to make up that five-hour um, lateness and get to uh, Jackson on time. Well, he ran into a uh, freight train, which was blocking the track, and nobody put out any protection, according to Sim Webb, who survived the accident. Sim said that we never saw a flagman and never heard a signal. Mm. But um, because Sim was black and the flag man was, apparently didn't do his job, was white, Sim Webb was never allowed to testify because he was a black man and the black man could not testify against a white man in Mississippi in 1900. Lore of the Rails. Well, Wallace Saunders was so upset by Casey's death that he made up a ballad. Mm-hmm. He was illiterate. He couldn't write it down. But he sang it, and all through the shops in Mississippi and uh, all down the railroad in Mississippi, everybody knew Wallace Saunders' ballad. A couple of Tin Pan Alley songwriters caught hold of it uh, a couple of years later and changed all the words and put a new tune to it and came up with the song hit of 1904. And Wallace Saunders, of course, never saw a cent. But Casey Jones has gone into legend. And the ballad of Casey Jones is still uh, very much alive today. I'm going to conclude the show uh, for tonight by doing the ballad of Casey Jones. Ready? Come on, all you rounders, if you want to hear a story about a brave engineer. Casey Jones was the the rounder's name on a big ten-wheeler he rode to fame. Caller called Casey about half past four. He kissed his wife at the station door, climbed to the cab with his orders in his hand, and says, Boys, this is my trip to the promised land. I'd been renting about five or six weeks. Railroad track was like the bed of a creek. Trains was all slowed to a 30-mile gate. Southbound mail went five hours late. See, now uh, I've got another verse to do here. All right. They run through South Memphis Yards. They run on the fly. Fireman says, Casey, you got the white eye. White was a signal for green, what we now have green, the ghost signal. It was white in those days. Casey, you got the white eye. And the switchman knew by the engine's moans that the man at the throttle was Casey Jones. 
carbon says, Casey, you're running too fast. You run the block signal last station we passed. Casey says, yeah, but we'll make it through because she's steaming better than I ever knew. Casey says, fireman, don't you fret. Keep knocking on your fire door and don't give up yet. I'm going to run this engine till she leaves the rail and make it on time with the southbound mail. Okay, um, got to get another another thing here. Okay, he rounded a curve about a mile from the place, and old number four stood him right in the face. He turned to the fireman and says, "You better jump, because there's two locomotives that's going to bump." Fireman says, "Casey, she's just ahead. If we don't jump now, we both be dead." Fireman jumped off, but Casey stayed on a grave engineer, but now he's dead and gone. Casey Jones, it was all, he was all right, stuck to his duty both day and night. But headaches and heartaches and all kinds of pain are not apart from the railroad train. And stories of great men, noble and grand, are all part of the life of a railroad man. Ira, that's wonderful. <laughs> I thought you were going to sing it, Ira. Well, I can't sing it because I don't, uh, I, I don't know what you. Wallace Saunders... Let's see if anyone about. has any questions. What a way to, what a story. That was incredible. Anybody have any questions listening here? Let me say that Carlos P. Huntington, if I can go back to him, uh, broke, as I remember, you can correct me, I write, broke with Leland Stanford, and he used to write the Dear Pard letters, I think, in the L.A. Times every week or two. Dear Pard, remember when we fixed this or we cheated people here and there? And they said Stanford aged 10 years when he saw this, and he really almost ruined it, even though he was a wealthy man. And then Henry, uh, Ira, you may not have been here, but some of us were. Uh, the Red Streetcar was the trolleys you're talking yeah, about. Henry, and you could Henry, go Henry, from um, San Bernardino almost to Santa Barbara for a nickel. I mean, you could go to Riverside from uh, the valley here for a nickel. And uh, Henry, Hunt Henry Huntington was the red car's man. Yeah, the red, the red, we call it the red car, red street car, right. And the auto industry, of course, drove it out in the 50s. It was a very sad time, and I don't mean to to monopolize it, but I remember we were kids, my mom would go shopping and hand us out the window to the, the conductor helped her to my aunt, and we were little kids, and drop us off and then come back from L.A., that was a big deal, uh, pick us up in the red streetcar and we'd go home to San Gabriel, California. I remember fondly that. Uh, any other, any questions, anybody? Well, Ira, we thank you. We know about the research. We can see it in your lecture. We sure appreciate it. And uh, we, we are recording this, and this will go out far and wide. And I love the Casey Jones story. You all the recording because I want to hear it. Thank you so much. Um, next time, whenever that is, uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the first 20 years of the uh, 20th century, okay, and go back over one or two things that I skipped tonight that I should have talked about. But that's okay. We'll do it, and I'll be in touch with you. And I thank you so much. Really enjoyable. Okay. All right. I'm going. Thank to you, Bob. Stop the recording here. Talk to you soon. <laughs>